Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, where Saints quarterback Drew Brees set the NFL record for the most passing yards of all time on October 8, 2018, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, which once held a Guinness Book of World Records uh, for the most layers in a cake in 2006 when Jane Parenti of Springdale baked a 230-layer cake. Tonight, we'll be talking about the Law of Parties and the Felony Murder Rule. Law of Parties states that someone who instigates a crime or an accomplice to a crime can be held to be legally culpable for the full extent of that crime, even if the individual did not directly participate or intend the result, such as the death of a victim an innocent bystander, or an accomplice. The felony murder rule states that a person who commits a felony, such as kidnapping, rape, burglary, or armed robbery, is legally culpable for any death that occurs, even where there is no specific act against the victim or an intent to cause the victim's death. As always, this is a live show, and calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. Good evening, Michael, and we were having some technical difficulties tonight. Yeah, yeah, I had to click over real quick to the introduction because I was like, I don't know how quickly Lisa's going to be able to dial back in here, but I'm certainly glad you you managed to make it back. But a couple things I want to address. First thing, as a big sports fan, definitely want to say congratulations go out to Drew Brees. I did see that last night, so... Definitely couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. I mean, you want to talk about a comeback story. This is a gentleman who originally was with the San Diego at the time Chargers, now the Mm -hmm. Los Angeles Chargers, and he gets replaced by Phillip Rivers, and it looks like his his whole career is over, and all of a sudden, you know, he becomes one of the best to ever play the game. So, you know, definitely, definitely a redemption story out there in New Orleans. The city of New Orleans needed him, and he was a perfect fit for us because he and his wife, Brittany, came in, and they immediately, because it was about a year after Katrina, he immediately began working with organizations to rebuild and 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 better the city and, and really just 
he does a lot of public service type work outside of of playing football. Oh and yeah, I believe he and Brittany live here won. year round. I believe so, and I think he's won the uh, Walter Camp Man of the Year Award, which the NFL uh, does each year to recognize people's charitable contributions and philanthropic mm-hmm. efforts in the community. Right. So, you know, once again, a, a great man and is uh, Drew Brees. The thing that brought tears to my eyes when I watched the, the videos last night, he was thanking every member of his team. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's you know, his accomplishment, uh, but he knows it's teamwork. Exactly. You know, I noticed the first people he went up to was his offensive linemen. So, you know, it's mm-hmm. definitely that that's definitely a fact that's not lost upon him is the fact that it takes a team effort to get to, you know, that high mark, I believe. I, and I forget the exact number. I want to say something like 81,000 yards, an astronomical number of yards that yeah. he's passed for in his NFL career. We'll put it that yeah. way. But the other thing I noticed in your intro, you said a Springdale based individual. I actually was mm-hmm. graduated from high school in Springdale. Uh, I graduated from Springdale mm-hmm. High School. So that's pretty cool. I don't quite I think I vaguely remember that happening, but you know, it, it's been good lord how yeah. knows how long and it was probably just a blip I, on the news. So I I was so excited when I found that, and then I found, unfortunately, that a bakery in Minnesota set a new record for a 260-layer cake. Well, we don't like Minnesota this year. It's too cold. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, well, well, you know, I got to sit around and wonder who sits around saying, "How many layers can I make this cake?" Dude, who wakes up to, in the morning and is like, I want to break a Guinness world record today? Because them things are getting quite ridiculous, the uh, world records that these people are setting. I don't understand yeah. how any of them get broken nowadays. But, uh, you know, we're going to kind of expound upon what we talked about last week with this uh, subject, law of parties and felony murder rule. And I actually do want to say I did go back and watch the uh, watch the episode on netflix that night i've actually been kind of trying to watch all of them on that i am a murderer uh show Mm -hmm. but um, i'm a killer yeah definitely or i'm a killer excuse me definitely found it very interesting um you know it was cool to see nico especially after speaking with him on the show uh one thing though that i noticed that me and you kind of i messaged you as soon as i finished the episode and i wanted to ask you about was uh, at the end, you know, Nico kept saying, and we kept saying on here that without him admitting at least some culpability, that he wouldn't uh, be able to be set free. And I asked you, because, and I'm not sure if you remember the exact uh, moment I'm talking about, but he was sitting there saying, Yes. And he kind of admitted some culpability. He said, Oh, Michael was up there and he flipped us off. And I was like, Man, you're going to let him do that? You know, yeah. it, it was a very vague in middle, you know, it was very vague, but he still kind of, uh-huh. you know, that's what I, why I messaged you. And I said, hey, does that technically count as, you know, saying, hey, I had some part in this? 
Well, no, it wouldn't technically, and he knows that it wouldn't technically. It still does not, uh, it still denies any robbery or attempt to rob Michael Levin and Mary Patrick. Mm-hmm. It's just a new twist. And so as I said, he... I believe he's a sociopath. So he's uh-huh. going to come up with a new story that he thinks will be more palatable to Nico as a means of getting Nico to meet with him because he thinks if he can talk to Nico, he's going to get Nico to support him uh, getting early parole or filing a new challenge to this conviction and sentence and get released prior to 2038. Well, and you know, one of the things, though, one of the overriding things that I noticed from that show watching it after we went off the air was this. It struck me, I didn't feel sorry so much for him as much as I did. I felt terrible for his uh, grandfather, I believe it is, who raised him. Because, you know, his poor grandfather doesn't want to believe that, you know, he admitted, you know, hey, yeah, my kid, this kid did wrong and he got involved with the wrong people. But he doesn't want to admit and he doesn't want to think that his grandson would be capable of, Mm -hmm. you know, doing something like this. So, you know, even in his meeting with Nico, Nico, you know, very formal, very nice about everything. But he told him, he said, hey. I can't do anything for him. And that's what Mm -hmm. I think everybody's disconnect is. Yeah, Nico can go meet with this guy all day, every day in the thing and be like, oh, yeah, I've forgiven him. But at the end of the day, that's where it pretty much ends. Nico has no influence over this guy getting out of jail. And I think everybody is terrible for uh, putting this on Nico. Yeah. The, but the the other problem is that Foster, even in his his statement, he's acting like those two prior armed robberies, you know, that was their idea, and I didn't have any say in it, and I didn't have anything to do with it. That wasn't me. That was them. So he's right. denying even any culpability for the armed robberies that occurred Which, prior to Michael's murder. Which, Even I mean, though a he shared in the proceeds. Like, hey, bro, I don't feel like doing this. Well, you know, no. When they came up with the idea, and he, he says they came up with the idea, and he's like, oh, I didn't really want to do that. And I'm thinking, well, then why didn't you pull your car over and tell him to get the fuck out? I was Pardon my friend. about to say that exact same thing. <laughs> like, dude, you're in control of the vehicle. Really, no matter why? whether they're bitching and moaning in the back or what, they're right. not controlling and, the vehicle, and they don't you know, have a the, gun. To the use. evidence, the evidence at trial showed that it was it was Foster who decided to follow Mary Patrick back to the LaHood house, not Steen, not Brown, not Dillard, because he was the one driving the car, and you know he can deny it all he wants, but they saw Mary Patrick driving alone late at night, they followed her on a route that you would only go if you, A, lived in that neighborhood, or B, you were stalking prey for another armed robbery. 
Right. And I mean, there, and there's just exactly, no ifs, ands, you know, or buts about it. The neighborhood, you know, and especially, you know, finally seeing the house when we were watching, when I was watching that documentary, finally seeing the house and everything. It, mm-hmm. The house is set away from the road, too, a little bit further than what I expected. Like, you literally had to get out of the vehicle, walk uphill, up the driveway. Mm-hmm. And this isn't a short driveway. Right. This isn't like a right. maybe 12-foot driveway. This driveway stretches a little bit. And then it, I believe I think it's it was actually 80 the, feet. Kind, yeah, I believe it's kind but, of blocked off, too, a little bit, it looked like. Uh, I'm I'm not really sure. I know Michael's car was up in the carport, and I think Mary Patrick's car was on the driveway. Right, right. And there was there was a, a second car on the carport, and it looks mm-hmm. like a it looked like a fairly wide driveway. It's probably like a three car carport. Right, right. So, so yeah, I mean it was it was not they weren't they weren't gonna they weren't looking for a club. They weren't out looking for people for music. They were out looking for people to rob. That is what they wanted to do. And that was what they were doing. For Kenneth Foster he can say, No, that wasn't it at all, you know, he can say that and that shows one of the problems is that you don't have any physical evidence that's going to prove one way or the other, really. Right. You have circumstantial evidence, like finding the bandana in the car with the gun. You know, that, and it was a, you know, it was a blue bandana the way as Mary Patrick described uh, but you're not going to have any physical evidence that's going to prove definitively that these, you know, they were there to commit an armed robbery. Right. You can't physically and, go inside somebody's brain and be like, okay, this is what your intention was. You can't mm-hmm. literally use that as evidence. Right. And and the other, the flip side of that coin is the perpetrator can say, oh, no, it wasn't that. It was really this. Absolutely. And you have no way of really refuting that, that. Yeah, you can't refute that. Honestly, you really can't refute. You can based upon their actions, but you can't literally tell somebody, okay, you're thinking, like, you can't come up to me and say, hey, at noon this afternoon, you were thinking about a double cheeseburger with a large fry and a chocolate shake. You can't, you, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Because I could respond with, no, I was thinking about a chicken sandwich and a sweet tea and a large fry. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Correct. You and can't if you've got somebody who's prove something like that. Quick, they can come up with that, you know, that denial and alternate facts very quickly. So it doesn't look like they're taking the time to invent something. It looks like they're, you know, legitimately recounting something. Now, Lisa, here's where me and you may kind of differ on things, though. One thing I will say is 
and thinking about this, especially in uh, Foster's case where he was sentenced to death, I do not believe, and this is all respect to the family and, and Michael's family and everything, I do not believe that the death penalty should necessarily apply in this case because of what we just talked about. I believe that mm-hmm. life should – everything up to the death penalty, I could get. But to end somebody's life for being there and not stopping it, that's a little wishy-washy for me. Well, the, the theory and some of the evidence at trial, especially because you got to remember Julius Steen, one of the – one of the guys in the car who was doing the spotting to pick out the victims, mm-hmm. he testified against Foster and Brown. Foster played a bigger role in the armed robberies than he is willing to admit to now. He was right. more or less the mastermind. Okay. And he was pointing... Julius Steen and Mauricio Brown at victims and saying, go get them. I forget his name, but is it kind of like that guy who was the father figure to the D.C. sniper? Because I remember he got the death Correct. penalty. I forget Lee, his name. Yeah, Lee Boyd, Lee, Boyd Malvo, uh, Lee Boyd Malvo was I was about to say, I could remember Malvo. I remember Malvo. And I think the guy's name was John Muhammad. Was yeah, the sniper. Muhammad and Malvo were what jumped out to me in that situation, and I couldn't mm-hmm. have put the name on either one of them as far as which one was which. But in that situation, kind of like Malvo me. directed Muhammad. No, 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 no. Malvo was the minor. Malvo was the was the stepson. Oh, John so Muhammad was, was the stepfather. Yeah. Okay, so but I think that they also they each well, I think that they each um they each took turns, oh okay, it's been a long time since I've read about the case, but I think there were some there were some victims that Muhammad shot and killed, but there were some victims that Malvo shot and killed because that was actually going to be my next question. That was actually going to be my yeah. next question: was was that a law of party situation where uh, well, it, the death penalty applied? I I believe he was a principal uh, to some of the murders and a an accomplice participant in law of parties. It's only called law of parties in Texas. In most mm-hmm. other states, it's referred to as accomplice liability. Okay. So if four people get together and they plan a robbery of a a clothing store and one person uh, cases the store and he looks at when the people come to pick up the money, uh, when the busiest days of the week are, when they close late, when there's only one person there, and he, you know, gathers all that information and then he sends the other three and gives each of them a job and gives them weapons and then sends them to the store to commit the robbery. And 
somebody doesn't cooperate or there's a customer there when they get there and, and the customer is a cop. Right. And then someone is killed, either one of the robbers or one of the, or the customer or one of the workers. That person who never set foot in the store but did all the planning and preparation, he is as guilty. Because you got to remember, a crime like armed robbery uh, is a dangerous crime that often involves loss of life or loss right. of life is substantially certain to occur. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, nope. you know, that's something people, uh, some people who argue against accomplice liability, law of parties, and even felony murder, say, well, you can't know that, to be psychic to know that someone's going to get killed. As the woman from Austin that had worked to uh, uh, campaign for Foster said, but it's not when you're dealing with armed robbery and guns, death is substantially certain to happen. When you're pointing True. a 44 caliber uh, revolver at a person's head while you demand their money, if the revolver goes off, whether you mean to or not, the person being shot in the head by a forty-four is going to die. Absolutely. Absolutely. So then that begs the next question, Lisa, where do you fall on this? Like Foster, for example. Let's take out the fact that, you know, what you know about him being a mastermind, though. Let's take that out. Let's just look at him as Kenneth Foster was driving the vehicle, didn't stop anything from occurring, and... You know, was just driving the vehicle. He may have egged it on a little bit by, you know, going, hey, buddy, you going to let him disrespect you like that or whatever. And dude hops out well, I, and goes and murders Michael. Do you support I'm, at that point Foster still getting the death penalty? I am going to decline that, uh, to decline to, to look at it under those parameters because I do not believe that, Michael LaHood shot the bird at these people. I do not believe that Kenneth Foster said anything, and I certainly don't believe anything. I don't believe a word that that came out of Foster's mouth the entire time that he was being interviewed. I'm just, I'm just poisoned. And I think that's part of the problem. Well, yeah, but I, again, I, I think that's part of the problem. You can't invent this scenario that in, that ignores facts that were established at trial and throughout the post-conviction process based on the self-serving statements made by Kenneth Foster in a documentary. Okay, I will then. I will then. Renegotiate my example. Lisa, me and you are driving <laughs> along in a vehicle. Yes. And I hop out and I go shoot somebody. And you knew I, you knew it was possible and so on and so forth. And you come up in the uh, law party situation. Would you be accepting in that case of a death penalty ruling for yourself as just the driver? And that's what I'm generally I, asking. I'm not I, saying I would, you support Ken, uh, I, Kenneth Foster, I would you make, know, what he got. Yeah. Michael, 
I love you, but I would make a deal so fast your head would spin, and then I would testify against <laughs> you at your trial. You totally turn state because that's another thing that that is another thing that a lot of people don't they don't think about and they forget. Kenneth Foster thought I'm gonna beat this case, and so he went to trial. So he didn't have he was presented with that option and he didn't take it. Well, you know, like I said, I don't know that he was ever presented with. Julius Steen did. That's what Julius Steen did. Okay. He got a he got a deal for a lesser uh, offense, and I believe he served his time and he's out. If he already served his time and and he was involved in another capital murder with uh, Dwayne Dillard, and so he may be in in prison for that now. But wow. I mean, that's an option. If that if Foster's involvement was so limited. What Foster should have done was told police, made a deal, and testified against the other three. Well, and the question I then asked you, and this is just what made me think about this, was actually I watched Get Hard last night, and I don't know if you've seen the movie, but it's hilarious. Will Ferrell's this, like, billionaire stockbroker dude, and... You know, he gets in some trouble that he didn't commit, and, you know, he's he, yeah. he gets offered a deal, and he's like, nah, I'm good. I'm going to expect the system to exonerate me because I'm an innocent man. I, I mean, potentially, could that have been a thought in his head? I expect the well, system I to exonerate know. me. I, I, you know, I I honestly don't know. Um, I guess because of his gang affiliation, he probably wouldn't have turned state's witness, although, like I said, Julius Steen did. Um, But, you know, I don't know. But as I said, if his involvement was really that limited, I don't understand why he wouldn't have, you know. Turned state's witness, right. And that Turned makes state sense. Witness I mean, and, honestly, and started a new life somewhere. But it, to, to me, me it that, says his his involvement was not as limited as he wants people to now believe that it was. Right, that's but true. But he thought well, he was going to beat the case. True, true, and I can agree with that uh, point of view as well. That's one thing, though, that you know. I, I, I sat there and I thought about whenever you said that, I was like, you know, maybe he honestly thought, but, you know, me and you can sit here all day, every day, and, you know, just like you said, I'd I'd turn on you in a heartbeat, Lisa, even though I love you to death, it uh-huh. would happen. But uh-huh. at the same time, I don't have to worry about the whole, you know, snitch it, stitches thing. <laughs> you know, it's a different mindset amongst people. Right, right. And that's, you know, that's yet another factor. I think that one of the things that I would like this show to show people is that really you can talk in generalizations and generalities only to a certain degree. But for the most part, to really understand the issues, you have to look at the specific facts on a case-by-case basis. And, you know, like I said, if Kenneth Foster was really just driving and he was an unwilling participant in the robberies, 
he did not serve himself well by not telling that story from the beginning. Because even oh, in the statements to police, he did really present himself as an unwilling, you know, participant that they got in the car and they threatened him. They were going to pull these on robberies and they threatened him to make him go along with it. No, he. Although, he and I'm sure that you know that's going to be version 3.0. It was peer pressure. He, yeah, he even but, said in the documentary, know, though, he was like, we were just chilling and we just decided, hey, we're going to go pull some, if I'm remembering correctly, and, you know, obviously I'm changing some words, but in, he was like, yeah, we were basically just chilling and all of a sudden we decided we needed some money, so we we're going to go rob some people or something, right. I believe. And that's part of the that's part of the problem with him because he can't keep the story straight. Because in another part of that interview, he said somebody said, "Hey, we got a gun, let's go pull some robberies." And, you know, I didn't know wasn't really what I wanted to do, but you know, peer pressure, I just went along with what they wanted to do. Right. He can't really remember, you know, when you lie, you have to have a great memory because you have to be able to remember the lie that you told 10 minutes ago. And that's when a lot of con artists get tripped up is they can't remember what story they told. And so then they get something wrong and so it's you know it it sends off warning bells with their the person they're trying to con. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's go ahead and talk about you know uh, what we are here to talk about. You know we've been debating mm-hmm. you know one specific case, but let's talk about the law of parties and the uh, felony murder rule. Now I see you have right. it listed here as two separate things. They're two separate laws, correct? Or are they basically correct. the same thing, just worded? You know, it's <laughs> it's kind of funny. There is some felony murder overlap in law of parties and accomplice liability, and then mm-hmm. felony murder is slightly on its own. But like I said, there are some overlaps. Um, for example, uh, in law, with law of parties, an attempted armed robbery, if someone dies, becomes capital murder. And that's okay. more felony murder than because they're committing the felony of robbery, a death occurs, then it's felony murder. So there's it's, right. it's and different states have it different ways, or you know have different uh, statutes defining it. As I said, law of parties is called law of parties in Texas, but in most other states it's called accomplice liability, which means if you and I get together and we go to rob a clothing store, and you have a gun, and it goes off and someone dies, whether you intended it to go off or not, you and I can both be held responsible for a felony murder, capital murder, even though I did not have a gun and I didn't shoot anybody. And I didn't intend to shoot anybody. Because we are undertaking a, a, a crime that involves a substantial threat 
to human life in armed robbery with a weapon. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, you know, felony murder, there are a lot of applications with felony murder. A person burglarizing a resident, a resident, they come face-to-face with the owner. The owner drops dead of a heart attack. That's a felony murder. Even though they didn't lay a finger on the victim, they didn't intend for the victim. They thought the victim wasn't there. But, you know, their their actions resulted in the, the victim's death. It's right. kind of a but-for test. If they weren't in the house, the owner might not have, you know, had any problem with his heart that would have precipitated a fatal heart attack. He may have had a heart problem, but as long as he was cool, calm, and collected, he was fine. But if he was right. experienced, you know, significant fear, that raised his heart rate, blood pressure, and, you know, his heart couldn't take it. And that's Absolutely. kind of like a vulnerable, you have a vulnerable victim. Mm-hmm. It's right. not necessarily healthy, uh, but, you know, it can die of natural causes from a significant event. And then yeah. there's also I've, accomplice liability or or felony murder for uh, you and I are robbing a store and the owner pulls out a gun and shoots you and kills you. I can be held responsible for your murder. Hmm. And that's another controversial aspect. There is a lot of controversy. I, I can see the controversy in that. Mainly, I think, because it's it's not portrayed on a case-by-case basis, and the reasoning beyond, behind why the law is there is not really uh, a prime topic. It's just, it's not fair. He didn't kill anybody. She didn't kill anybody. The owner killed him. It's not well, fair. See, that's something that, that's something that I would argue because, and the reason why, Lisa, is this. If I knowingly and clear-headedly, without you peer pressuring or anything like that, if I just decided, hey, let's go do this, and let's say even I peer pressured you, and I knew the risks going in that I could potentially be killed, I think that would be, excuse my language, but bullshit to be able to pin you with that murder. Yeah, but again, it's the but for. If we didn't rob that store, the owner would not have shot and killed you. You would be alive but if what, we had not robbed that store. Was so it not my job of would have my... been to say, Michael, that's a really bad idea because I know this dude and he, he has a gun under the counter. And again, it's a case by case basis. You know, somebody that knows, um, you know, if you know the the store owner's packing uh, or, or has a pistol, you leave him alone because he's more right. likely than not going to pull that pistol and shoot somebody. Yeah, um, but we're talking about criminals that probably don't have the highest uh, right level of reasoning and probably right. don't they, think they, about oh that person well, might have they, a gun. 
I think the I think the other problem is is that they don't consider consequences and they don't think through their actions. I would agree with that. Um I but, would certainly agree with that. You know, I, again and that's another situation where I would negotiate a deal to something less than first degree or capital murder. And admit right, guilt. I'm pretty and sure that's another thing people don't understand pretty, is yeah, the state the state wants uh a conviction, but they don't necessarily have to get it out of trial. If you're willing to admit what you did and plead guilty, generally they will reduce the charges to second degree murder or manslaughter. Right. Something now it does, it does seem like it does seem like they use the uh death penalty almost like a fear tactic in some uh instances, you know, and they wield that with a lot of power in some instances to negotiate. Because well, you know, if somebody comes up to me and says, Well, I can I can slap you with the death penalty, I'm more likely to be like, Okay, let's negotiate this. <laughs> well let's talk about this a little bit more. Well, but usually when when they're when a as Nico said, they don't do it lightly. But when what you right. did qualifies or 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 you know qualifies as capital murder, if you go into that store and just start shooting and kill three people, that's capital murder. Okay. You know. Um, if you start shooting and a two-year-old child is shot and killed, that is capital murder. If you're fleeing police and you run over the one of the police officers putting out spike strips to stop you, that's capital murder. If you set a fire and you shoot a fireman who's trying to put the fire out, that's capital murder. Um, so if you're willing to say, yes, I did that, you're probably not going to get much less than life in prison. Uh, mm. And they probably would not reduce it to less than first degree. But, you know, you but you have to be willing to admit you're, you're guilty. Right. And not just guilty... You know, like the gun accidentally went off. I didn't mean to shoot anybody. Even though you went in and you targeted each of the people that you shot. Uh, Mauricio Brown, one of his defenses was the gun went off by accident. But they apparently at trial had a an expert who testified that the trigger pull on that particular gun was more pressure than would occur, you know, that it would take a lot more for an, for the trigger to pull than you could do for an accidental shooting. You have to, you know, intend to pull the trigger. It wouldn't just, you know, just depress because you were holding the gun wrong. Right, absolutely. And I would completely agree so, with that. You do have to make a conscious effort and know what you're doing. 
Mm-hmm. Correct. But, uh, you know, again, it's it's a case-by-case thing. And I've got some examples of felony murder cases. Um, right. And some of them, you know, I don't necessarily agree with. But, um, you know, some of them I kind of do. Uh, I have one, right. a Missouri man who was driving on a residential street when an unsupervised two-year-old darted in front of a, the stolen car that he was driving. He'd been driving the car for seven months and hadn't been caught yet. So got to wonder about the cops in Missouri. Uh, this toddler was struck and killed, and he was convicted on a felony murder predicated on the theft. And then, um, which... You know, I I, I kind of don't agree on that one. You still there, Michael? Yeah, I'm still here. I'm I'm okay. listening. I All apologize. Right. I was thinking the call. I was thinking the call dropped again because my phone's been dropping us. Um, I kind of no, don't agree no. on that one. All right. Okay. Um, mark your calendar. This will be a first. A felony murder case Lisa does not agree with. Uh, Jonathan Miller, a almost... 15-year-old Georgia youth, <laughs> well, uh, real punched quick another boy. These, real quick before we get into these, actually, that you know brings up a point that I kind of you know okay. would like to explore. You know, you've always told me to uh, let you know about uh, show ideas. What about this? What about minors charged with okay. capital murder, especially ones that. Well, no, no, this was felony murder. It it wasn't necessarily capital murder or or death penalty eligible. Although it would be because of the age of the child, but I can see what I would, you know, what I could find out about Mr. Kohlenberg. The reason I don't agree with it, this doesn't say that he was fleeing from police at the time in the stolen car, or that there was anything about his actions that would have, you know, evidenced some indifference to the lives of innocent people. And this sounds right. like, an, you know, a, a two-year-old just darted into the street, and it could happen to anybody. Right. Well, I was just... And it wouldn't even necessarily have been a crime. You mentioned a 15-year-old made me think about, you know, how hot a topic that is about juveniles who potentially could get the uh, death penalty. So I figure that'd be a pretty good episode if you wanted to uh, talk about well, the cases where that happened. Ever since Atkins, 15-year-olds who commit murder no longer can be sentenced to death. And the so ability really? of state to sentence them to life in prison is being challenged daily. Um, okay. Or life in prison without possibility of parole. So uh, this uh, this young man punched another boy in a schoolyard dispute, and he was convicted on a felony murder predicated on the felonies of assault with a de- deadly weapon and battery with injury. Those are two felonies in Georgia. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that one either. That would have been a manslaughter because it was 
they were in a schoolyard dispute, and you know he he did assault the other kid. He probably was assaulted as well. Uh, depends on what the the facts of that fight were. Uh, but yeah, I don't agree. With I'm that pretty one. sure. I'm pretty sure that in a fight, your your goal isn't ultimately to kill somebody. But you know, mm-hmm. you know, right. if you want to argue that point, I guess you can. Yeah. Some people um, it could very well then, be though. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. These are like summaries. Again, they're 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 a paragraph summary. Um, uh, you know, have one where an officer, uh, or no, actually a, a co-defendant. Oh no no no! Sorry, I'm reading this. An officer accidentally fired his gun and shot his partner while trying to apprehend a suspect. And the suspect was convicted of felony murder predicated on the battery of a police officer. Not the police officer who was killed, but the police officer who was trying to apprehend her. Yeah, one of those situations. Right. Well, it's but four. Or, excuse me, yeah, but four. she, She was suspected of or, or he was suspected of drug possession. Yeah, you definitely graduated from drug possession once you're charged so with murder. If, and, and, you know, but for if he had just, you know, complied with the officer, let the officer search him, no drugs were found. So he wasn't holding drugs. Because unfortunately, you know, just like you're not supposed to run from a lion or a tiger or a German shepherd or a Belgian Malinois, you really shouldn't run from police either. They're not going to say, oh, I ate too many donuts a day. I don't feel like chasing you. They're going to chase you. (laughs) They're going to bring a dog in to chase you. You know, they're not going to give up and throw up their hands and say, oh, well, Another one bites the dust. You know. Did you just say they're not so, going to say, oh, I ate too many donuts today? Let's just earmark that piece of uh, audio. Yes, I, that is one of my favorite, <laughs> that is one of my favorite um, metaphors or similes or whatever you want to call it. Well, you know, don't I've run actually from police. I've actually had a cop explain to me where that crap comes from, and he actually said he was like, well, I mean, if you're working the graveyard shift, what's the only thing open yeah, to eat? Yeah, the only place open is a donut shop. Yeah, exactly. And I don't begrudge police officers. You know, I, I, I don't, but they're they're not going to say, like in New, in New Orleans, they're not going to say, I've eaten too many beignets, you right. know, over at Morning Call or Cafe Du Monde. You know, they're going to chase you. Right. And they're going to bring a dog to, to help them chase you. And the dog is going to bite you. So, you know, you got to uh, you got to pick your battles. And running from cops is not a, not a battle you're going to win. Yeah, I was about to say, I don't think the odds are in your favor if you run. Let's be honest here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I, I would easily say a good 95% of people who decide to run are apprehended quite quickly. Right. Well, and the other thing, the other problem is when you decide to run, even if you hadn't done anything wrong, you're reinforcing the police officer's uh, belief or suspicion that you have done something wrong. Well, not only that, when they grab you and they find out you did nothing wrong, they're going to be like, dude, why'd you run if you did nothing wrong? Like, I've mm-hmm. seen that before. Exactly. He was like, dude, why you run? Right. Why you running? There's yeah. nothing wrong. Now you got to charge. Now you got to charge. Right, exactly. Fleeing. That's exactly. That's what people don't realize is if you would, if you would just stay there and cooperate. And I've seen, I, you know, I watch a lot of cops and I, I watch a lot of PD periodically. And, you know, I've seen people who did stand and cooperate and no arrests were made and they were respectful and the officers were respectful and everything ended well. Um, I think I've told you about the one cops episode that blew me away. These three young uh, African-American males in a vehicle, it's pulled over. They ask questions of the officer and the officer says, Give me a second, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll explain in a minute, just give me a minute. And he calls in where he is, and um, he's stopping the car because it matches the description of a vehicle that had just been involved in an armed robbery. Right. He doesn't have any information about suspects, who's in the car, how many people are in the car. He asked the kids their names. They were like college-age young men. Asked their names, gets their IDs. They all cooperated. They didn't demand that he answer their questions or anything of that nature. And then he, you know, figured out where they were coming from, where they were going. That all made sense. And so he said, "Look, I'm sorry. I your car matches the description of an armed ro- car involved in an armed robbery." I had to stop you and check it out. I really appreciate that you cooperated. And so you guys can be on your way now. He didn't pull anybody out of the car. He didn't search anybody. You know, there was nothing, no smell of alcohol, no smell of any other substances in his dealing with these young men. They were good young men who, you know, and, and they were good young men they didn't yell and scream and holler and get their feelings hurt about being stopped. They were cooperative and respectful to him, and he was respectful to them. And, you know, they went on their way after a very few minutes. Hey, Lisa, i got to break in here real quick. I'm going to step away from my microphone. We've got some severe weather in the area, so I'm going to check okay. on that, and I'll be right back, Okay. Okay, well, I guess I will move on. Yeah, I will move on to a few of the cases that um, we were going to cover. Not as many cases. The last time when we did Murder for High, I think we got a little too, uh, uh, what do, what do I want, what's the word I want to use? Uh, we tried to do too much in too little time. So this time we're going to keep it relatively short and sweet as far as cases. Uh, One of the kind of deciding cases on accomplice liability is 
a case called Edmund versus Florida, and it's a U.S. Supreme Court case decided in 1982. Basically, Mr. Edmund was involved in a robbery of an elderly couple in Florida, and he and his uh, co-defendant were both sentenced to death. Co-defendant is the person who killed the victims. Uh, Mr. Enman did not have anything to do with the, the murder of the victims or take any part in the murders of the victims. Uh, so the U.S. Supreme Court found that in that particular case, the death penalty was cruel and unusual punishment pursuant to the 8th and 14th Amendments. Now, that doesn't mean Mr. Enman was released from prison. I believe Mr. Enman's sentence was just commuted from death to life in prison or uh, whatever sentence uh, Florida had at that time for the degree of murder that he was convicted for that was less than death. So that is one of the cases. The second hey, Lisa? Case, yes, yes, sir. I apologize. I am going to be away from her a little bit longer than what expected. They just uh, issued a tornado warning for my county, so I'm going to try to keep an okay. eye on it until it goes expired, okay? I'm going to try to keep an eye okay. on both, but I'm not going to be able to talk, okay? Okay, no problem. I'll keep talking okay, to myself. Okay, I'm going to mute myself again. Yes, ma'am. Okay. All right. All right. The next case uh, is also a U.S. Supreme Court case, and it is another uh, kind of controlling case uh, on the issue of accomplice liability and death penalty. And that is the area that is more or less a major opposition to law of parties, accomplice liability, and felony murder is where a person can be sentenced to death even though they didn't kill anyone. Uh, that's what it boils down to. And in the Tyson case, this was Tyson versus Arizona, and involved two brothers, Ricky and Raymond Tyson. They helped their father uh, escape from prison along with some other people. And during the course of their flight from uh, their father being recaptured, they abducted, detained, and robbed a family of four. Later, their father and another convict who was they helped escape murdered the family. Uh, at the time, the Tyson brothers were outside. That case, the court actually found that the brothers' participation in the escape and the abduction and robbery and holding of the family uh, did make them eligible for the death penalty, even though they did not actually kill the victims or intend that the victims die. And the reasoning behind that was that um, they had they played a major part in the full the overall crime. They helped the father escape with the other prisoner. They helped him hide. They helped him flee. They helped him abduct and rob the family. 
So they were, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound uh, sort of reasoning for that case. Uh, And then, of course, we have Kenneth Foster, who we spoke about last week with uh, Nicola Hood, uh, who was a great great guest, by the way. Um, A little disappointed that he wasn't available, but his schedule as, uh, you know, the current DA finishing up his first year or his first term. Uh, is uh, pretty hectic. So he was the driver of a vehicle. He was involved in and shared in the proceeds from two prior armed robberies on the night of August 14, 1996. Later in the night, he was driving around, and he spotted a woman by the name of Mary Patrick driving in an area of San Antonio uh, going into, I think, the south part of the county. I'm not sure. And he began following her, followed her into a residential neighborhood. She pulled into the driveway of a house. He passed the driveway, turned around. When he came back past the house, she was at the bottom of the driveway because she wanted to know who was following her. Apparently, the vehicle had had the bright lights on or something. And so when she realized that she didn't know any of the guys in the car, she walked away and was going up the driveway toward Michael LaHood, who was in the carport near his car. And immediately as she turned to go back up the driveway, Mauricio Brown, who had been involved involved in the two armed robberies earlier in the evening, exited Foster's vehicle carrying a 44 caliber pistol, wearing a bandana over the mouth and nose, covering his face. He and Foster claimed that all he wanted was Mary Patrick's phone number because she was a pretty woman. But in my reasoning, and hopefully a lot of other people out there, you don't get out of a car to ask for a girl's phone number carrying a 44 caliber pistol and wearing a bandana over your face. That makes no sense. So uh, he, Mary Patrick heard him demand Michael LaHood's keys and wallet and money, and then she heard a gunshot, and Michael LaHood was killed instantly by a gunshot to the head. Foster... Dwayne Dillard, Julia Steen, and Mauricio Brown fled. They were caught about an hour later, maybe less than that. Uh, Foster was driving erratically. The gun was found wrapped in a bandana under the front driver's seat. It was, I think, under the seat from the back seat. And um, they were able to catch the people who shot Michael LaHood very quickly. Foster, to this day, does not want to admit that Michael LaHood was being robbed. He and Mauricio Brown both claim that he wasn't trying to rob them. He was just going to ask for Mary Patrick's phone number. A jury didn't believe that, and no court has believed that. Kenneth Foster was originally sentenced to death along with Mauricio Brown, but just a few hours before his execution in August of 2007, Governor Rick Perry commuted his sentence from death to life in prison, which in Texas means 
he served 40 he has to serve 40 years before he becomes eligible for parole um I kind of wish Nico LaHood had been able to be on so that I could ask him about the whole thing with one of the odd parts with Texas is for a lot of years there has not ever been a true life without parole. In Texas, life doesn't mean life, and it has never meant life. And that's what has resulted in a lot of people being convicted of murder getting out of prison, and then committing additional murders after they're released. And most of the time, they're released not because their cases were overturned or their uh, sentences were commuted, but simply because they served as much time as Texas requires. So I would love to talk to somebody about Texas sentencing someday. Um, The next case... Uh, is Jeffrey Lee Wood. He was also sentenced under Texas Law of Parties. He and a friend planned an armed robbery, or he and two friends planned, three friends planned an armed robbery of a convenience store, and it was going to be an inside job. One of the friends backed out, and so Jeffrey and the friend who worked in the store and a third man decided to go through with the armed robbery or the inside job robbery. They went to the store, and while Jeffrey was outside waiting in the car, the accomplice went in and shot the friend who was going to help them rob the store. Uh, After the shooting, Jeffrey Wood did go into the store, and he helped remove money and safe and whatever else they needed or they wanted. Um, He was also sentenced to death, and his sentence has raised a lot of controversy. Um, He was in on the planning, and he was in on the robbery. So uh, that's one of the ones that, you know, he's in for a penny, he's in for a pound. He wasn't, it wasn't the friend asking for a ride to the store, went into the store, he hears gunshots, and then he drives away and turns the guy in. Uh, He even, I think at one point, he didn't know where the friend was. So I'm not real familiar with this case. I'll look at his case a little bit more in the future. Uh, Michael, are you there? I guess he's not. Okay, Mother Nature is throwing a a wrench into our plans for tonight, that's for sure. Um, I am going to, let's see, all right. Uh, The next case is California versus Brandon Hine, and a lot of people have probably also heard of this case. Brandon and some of his friends wanted to rob the local drug dealer. Um, and so they went to his house, and he had a little setup in the backyard, kind of a fort, treehouse thing going on. And they went in to rob him. The idea was to rush him and whoever else was there 
and kind of overpower them and then get away with all his money and drugs. During the course of that uh, overpowering, however, one of the guys with Brandon and the other friends pulled a knife and stabbed this young man to death. Brandon and all four of the guys involved in the robbery were charged um, with felony murder under California law. And that, I think, also was kind of an accomplice liability. They, they, only one of them caused the death, but they were all involved in the robbery that led to the death. And, uh, again, his, uh, his, I believe he was sentenced to death, but his death sentence was commuted by Governor Schwarzenegger. Um, and now he is serving life in prison. I uh, believe there's still efforts to try and get him out of prison. Uh, that's a case we might want to go into if Michael's listening. He can start making notes and, and we can start researching some new cases, uh, at least to finish out our year. And then the final case is State of Washington versus Caesar Sarasso. Now, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, Caesar was driving a car that was involved in a shooting at a school in which a young woman was killed. Apparently, Caesar and his friends were in one gang and members of a rival gang attended the school in Washington State. And there was some beef between the two gangs. And so the shooting was planned in retaliation or to strike out at the rival gang. Um, Mr. Sarsud. Sarso's argument is, you know, I was just driving the car. I didn't shoot anybody. I didn't plan anything. But the evidence at trial showed that he slowed down as he drove past the school. He knew that the passenger in the front seat who did the shooting was armed with a weapon. And once he had passed the school and the shooting had you know, the the shooting had been done, he peeled off and took off and left. And then, of course, everybody tried to avoid being identified and uh, being talked to by police and arrested. And um, his case was actually, his sentence and conviction were vacated by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals the state of Washington appealed and the U.S. Supreme Court reinstated the uh, sentence and the conviction. They also ordered new sentencing for one of the other defendants who was a minor at the time of the shooting. So that is kind of, those are the cases I wanted to look at tonight and like I said, we're not trying to go too in-depth into anything, just kind of give you an, uh, an exa- some examples of the types of cases. 
Um, one of the other things with law of parties and felony murder is there are challenges with the prosecution. People think it's not fair to slam dunk, but it really isn't because you have the uh, lack of ab- or absence of physical evidence. A lot of times in some of these cases, you're prosecuting a person who wasn't physically present at the crime scene in a murder for hire case, for example. I'm alive. That would be, oh, thank goodness. You didn't have to put your head between your knees and kiss your ass goodbye. No, I'm so no, happy. not at all. I just, they just allowed it to that, expire. Apparent, apparently they issued it because of a, uh, because of a uh, small little knot. I don't know if you guys uh-huh. have a V-Red down there, but essentially it shows no. the wind coming to and away from the radar point, and they allowed it yeah. to expire. Yeah. Um, that is the one thing I do not miss about Arkansas. The damn tornado warnings. I'm from Louisiana. Tornadoes. We have hurricanes. You have at least a week most of the time with a hurricane to decide what you're going to do, where you're going to go. And I don't like tornadoes because you hear that siren and you've got like maybe two minutes if you're lucky. You still hear Michael? It definitely ain't long. It definitely ain't long and got more development. So I may have to disappear again. They may have reissued oh, no. it, so hold on. Give me a minute. I'm working on it. I apologize, Lisa, and everybody out there listening. Oh, no, no. Okay, I guess he must have had to step away again because they, they apparently brought it back. That's the other thing I, I don't like is that they, they let them expire, and then as soon as they expire, they bring them back. So uh, anyway, uh, like I said, a murder-for-hire case uh, would be lost parties, accomplice liability, or felony murder, because, depending on state law, um, because you're dealing with somebody who didn't actually commit the crime, but got someone else to do it for them. You also see that a lot in uh, gang cases, where drive-by shootings, where one person orders three gang lower level gang members to go carry out the shooting and you know he's but he's the one pulling the strings behind the scenes and that is the purpose in a lot of states for law of parties accomplice liability and or felony murder is to punish everyone who is involved in creating a situation that causes a loss of life of an innocent bystander or a a victim targeted, or in some cases an accomplice. Some states have actually rewritten the law so that an accomplice death cannot result in a felony murder prosecution. Uh, other states they don't see it that way because again, you're talking about people who are creating a situation committing an armed robbery, an abduction, uh, a drive-by shooting that is 
substantially certain to cause a loss of life. Um, another challenge is that in most cases, because the intent and the guilty mind and the guilty acts are circumstantial, a lot of times you need the word of a co-conspirator or an accomplice to basically prove or show the state of mind of the people on trial, that they, it wasn't an accident. They were trying to rob the place. They didn't go in there and be just, they weren't disrespected by the owner of the store, and that's why they pulled out the gun and shot him. Um, and so that is, and that's a problem because a lot of times those accomplices have uh, admitted their own culpability and pled guilty and gotten a lesser charge in exchange for their truthful testimony uh, in, a, in a trial. So that you know doesn't carry a lot of weight sometimes with juries because criminals are not the most trustworthy people on the face of the earth. Um, so, uh, and then finally, you, of course, always have the self-serving statements of the parties involved in the crime to say, oh, no, no, it wasn't an armed robbery. He was just asking for a phone number. Or, no, 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 the store owner disrespected us, and that's why we pulled the gun. Um, and so that can sometimes sway juries if the uh, defense attorneys and the uh, individuals are enough in their statements and testimony. Sometimes juries will believe it. Uh, there is, of course, a lot of opposition to the idea of someone who doesn't kill anyone being sentenced to death or being sentenced to a life sentence, a first-degree murder. I don't necessarily agree all of the time with those harsher sentences, but the majority of the time I do. A gang member who sends three minions out to kill a rival gang member and his family or a police officer and his family or a judge and his family, in cases like that, yes, I would support that person. He didn't physically caused their deaths, but he wanted them dead. And he got three people to go out and kill them. And that makes him as culpable, if not more culpable, because he's the one who wants them dead, and he's the one who brings their deaths about. Um, a lot of states are also... Uh, they're revising their law of parties in Texas. I think they did have some revisions. Uh, I think they're basically moving toward not uh, not being a death el eligible. So an accomplice can't be sentenced to death if they didn't cause the death. Some people, I think that that is equitable, but for others, I'm not necessarily sure that that is equitable. Because, again, if you've got someone who points a hitman at their husband and sends him out to do the killing, 
then that person deserves uh, more so than the trigger man. Absolutely. And, Lisa, uh, I apologize. I just wanted to let you know I'm back. Uh, they did allow it to expire again. I guess they just uh, wanted one more second to uh, see what it was <laughs> going to do. But, I mean, thank the good Lord that they were erring on the side of caution. Uh, but right now mm-hmm. it doesn't look like it's going to do anything, so uh, we're good to go. Yeah. Now, I apologize. I did kind of lose my place here. Where are we? Well, I pretty much moved through everything. Because you weren't oh, here okay. to sidetrack me Aww, and to ask me I'm questions. Sorry. So no, 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 no. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not complaining. It's okay. <laughs> um, but <laughs> yeah. Gotta so, love when Mother Nature um, decides to step in. I know. Well, thank goodness we're not both in Arkansas because tonight would have been really messed up. Yeah. <laughs> right. Although I would have been no. in Marion, I don't know if it's as far, I don't know if it's as far uh, east as Marion. Um, not yet. Uh, Marion, okay. Marion uh, is off towards Memphis. We're we're really looking at these storms tonight are moving out towards the northeast. You know, uh, they're just now getting into central Arkansas. Okay, okay. So, so and I, I, hope okay. yeah. I, I yeah, hope I'm Brad sure is okay. Yeah, I hope Brad is okay. Yeah, I'm sure he's, he's fine. Doing... He, uh, from what I understand, it uh, it really uh, became disorganized before it even got in the same county as us. So that's why mm-hmm. the uh, National Weather Service decided to allow it to expire. Is uh, it seems okay. like the uh, energy kind of dispersed amongst the area. So, you know, okay. that's a good thing. Well, that's good. That's good. So, yeah, uh, anyway, I, yeah, I've moved through all the topics that I had on the outline, and I think I pretty much covered it. Um, okay. We may want to, you know, look into revisiting some of the cases a little bit more in depth. Mm-hmm. Um, the Hind one and the Saraso and Jeffrey Wood. Uh, there's Absolutely. another case that I, I didn't, I didn't put on the uh I didn't put it on the outline for some reason. It's the state of Texas versus Stephen Woods. He was executed in September of twenty eleven. He was a drug dealer in Dallas and another drug dealer, kind of a small time dealer, but another drug dealer, was cutting in on his business. So he and uh his partner, Marcus Rhodes, decided that they were gonna get rid of the competition. They lured Marcus. Uh, they lured uh, Ron Whitehead and Bettina Bross out to a deserted area in Denton, and they killed them. Bettina was an innocent bystander. She was giving Whitehead a ride. She wasn't involved in drug dealing. She wasn't. She. I think she and Ron were dating but just kind of had just started dating. Right. And, uh, but they killed her. They were found the next morning by golfers and mm-hmm. she lived another 24 hours. Ron was dead when they found him. Um, over the years, Woods told a lot of different stories. Uh, he denied any involvement when he was interviewed by police, but he never told police that Ron, or that Marcus Rhodes was involved. 
Then he fled Dallas. And he went to New Orleans. While in New Orleans, he made incriminating statements to a few people, and then he was eventually arrested and brought back to Dallas and tried. He and Marcus Rhodes, who Marcus Rhodes was found in possession of Ron Whitehead's belongings, the guns, everything, uh, you know, he got stuck holding that bag. Um, He ended up pleading guilty. His dad was an attorney, and more likely than not, he wasn't getting a deal because he got life in prison uh, because he's pled guilty to capital murder. Um, But uh, I think he had the sense to save his family the embarrassment of a trial. Woods, on the other hand, went to trial. At trial, he tried to set up an alibi. That didn't work. The statements that he made admitting and bragging about killing white-headed Bross were admitted and used against him at trial, and he was convicted and sentenced to death. In later years, he claimed that he was there, but he was so high, he didn't know what was going on. He was lighting a cigarette for Ron, uh, yeah, for Ron Whitehead, when all of a sudden Ron's face exploded, and that by himself Marcus Rhodes did everything. Marcus right. Rhodes shot the victims with two different guns. Marcus Rhodes cut the victims' throats, and part of his part of his reasoning was, well, Marcus Rhodes pled guilty to causing their death, mm-hmm. and didn't say anything about me. That's how guilty pleas work. When you enter a guilty plea, you don't talk about your accomplices. You don't talk about your co-defendants. You enter a guilty plea based on your culpability and your guilt and your actions. Um, So, uh, but when Woods started making the statements about being there and knowing it was going to go down, but not really having anything to do with it, uh, the, I, I think it was one of the prosecutors said, well, you know, what he's saying, he would still be guilty under law of the parties. And so, of course, that's what his uh, uh, supporters decided to start telling people if he was convicted under the law of parties, when in reality, he was convicted as a principal. Right. Remember, there were two different guns used. And it's not very likely that Marcus Rhodes was holding one gun in each hand. Uh, there were also, there was, you know, statements and testimony from other people that this was Stephen and Marcus's plan, not Marcus's plan. So... Um, but that's another one. But again, you know, he he created a new narrative. But in creating that narrative, the way that he created it, he still left himself criminally culpable under law of the parties. Okay. Okay. okay yeah, that makes sense. So, that makes sense. Now, um, I'll, a quick note. I think we're I think we're about ready to put a bow on this one. 
Uh, but a quick note, we are going to be, we're not going to be on the air next week, October 16th, Tuesday. Uh, Michael, you are going to be doing some live streaming events as part right. of the ASWF. Right, right. We're getting and, ready to do our big Halloween show a week from Saturday. So if you guys are in the area, feel free to come out to Tuckerman, Arkansas, uh, 201 Highway 360. It's a uh, great family event, great for the kids. Kids six and under get in for free, and the parents, hey, you guys get in for five bucks a piece. So can't really beat that for some good quality family entertainment. And you're going to be doing live streaming on Facebook. Now, are you going to be doing that on ASWF? Are you going to be doing it on Talk Radio 49 or both? How would we go I'm about be doing it on live the, streaming? I'm going to be doing it on the ASWF page. Okay, and when are you going? Are you going to be doing these? Is it going to be like guerrilla live streaming, where all of a sudden, when you least expect it, there's Michael on the live stream, or no, are you no, going to have definitely. a schedule? Yeah, we're going to have a schedule. Keep an eye out on Facebook. Uh, the deal is this tomorrow night is going to be our first one. We're going to do the big card reveal. A couple of our matches, mm-hmm. a lot of our fans know uh, at least three of our matches already, but we're going to reveal the whole card tomorrow night on Facebook Live at 7 p.m. on the uh, ASWF Facebook page. And then and at 7 uh, p.m. Central, week, correct? That is correct. 7 I'm sorry, p.m. Central 7 time. p.m. Central. And then uh, starting next week, every night we're going to have a live video. Uh, we're going to have our, uh, we're going to have the wrestlers come in. They're going to talk with us. And, of course, every uh, Thursday night uh, leading up, so the next two Thursday nights, we're going to do ASWF Aftermath right here on Talk Radio 49 for the next two Thursdays. Usually we do it every other week, but this time uh, we're going to do it every week uh, heading into the show. So we'll uh, look forward to seeing a lot of people there, hopefully. Great. All right. Well, you might want to consider some guerrilla live streaming. It's always fun. Just show when you least expected, boom, there's Michael on the live stream. Well, there we go. I may just do and that. I, you never I, know. I could be giving away some tickets been, that way. I've been watching the um, the different posts, and okay, you gotta you gotta enlighten me here. Who mm-hmm. is who? Who is Mister Ninety Nine Percent? Mr. 99% would be Bad Brad, uh, Mr. Hicks, okay. as everybody knows. Okay. And then Suicide King is? Would be a gentleman by the name of Ray Ray. That's what he wrestles. Uh, that's the name okay. he wrestles okay. under. Um, you can find him on Facebook at Ray Ray. Uh, just search it, and you'll find his page. Okay. And then he was the person stalking Brad, because that was really creepy. <laughs> that would actually have just been revealed. That was uh, the Suicide King, Ray Ray. Uh, we just revealed okay, that at okay. the last show. I must have, I must, I, I must not seen that in my in my Facebook newsfeed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I'll have to tag you in the video. Okay. Yeah. Do that. I'll because I'll keep up, and you know we can we can talk about that. I, I don't mind helping you. Plug that and plug your your Thursday night shows. Absolutely, so we absolutely. Can always That's what we're all about here. Make a little time. Talk Radio 40. I 
I used to be a wrestling fan. I used to watch wrestling. But I kind of stopped. Yeah, before it got crazy. I was a fan of the Von Erics. Okay. So that tells okay. you how old I am. Well, I mean, shoot, that'd be about your area back then. You know, everybody had their area stars. So, you know, the Von Erics would be, you know, pretty appropriate for this area. They air actually they um they were in Dallas, Dallas. but they aired on um a, a station in New Orleans. Okay. And they they yeah, definitely. they came to New Orleans a few times. So yeah. So mm-hmm. I yeah, definitely a, remember the Von <laughs> Well, I unfortunately don't I think only person, one of them. But... Yeah, no, I, I think only one of them is still alive, Kevin. And I don't even know if he's still alive. So that Absolutely. had you know the all the tragedy and triumph. Oh, you don't lie. So, um, all right. That's so that's we, we're set up. So we're not going to be on next week. We'll be back in two weeks. Uh, I want to thank everyone for listening. Clear and convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and you want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien LN. Join us in two weeks on Tuesday, October 23rd, 2018 at 8 p.m. Central for episode 26, State of California versus Betty Broderick. In the early morning hours of November 5th, 1989, Betty used her daughter's keys to enter her ex-husband's house. Once in the master bedroom, Betty shot and killed her ex-husband, Dan Broderick, a prominent San Diego attorney, and his wife of seven months, Linda Colquina Broderick. Join Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan for a discussion of the history of the Brodericks and their divorce, the events that preceded the murders, and the case against Broderick who was denied parole for a second time in January 2017. We're also going to be joined by Sharon Blanchett, a California family law attorney and a friend of Dan and Linda Broderick. So we look forward to seeing you then or talking to you then. Have a great two weeks. Everybody stay safe. Good night.